And we don't just need to tell the truth to others. We need to tell the truth to ourselves. And when the truth is inconvenient, I really have a tension with this person that I deal with. And I am playing bad records in my mind about them. You probably need to say, okay, let me think of a way to at least broach the subject. Welcome to the Winsome Conviction Podcast. My name is Rick Langer, and I'm one of your co-hosts for this podcast. I'm a professor in the Biblical Studies and Theology Department and Director of Office of Faith and Learning here at Biola, as well as a co-director of the Winsome Conviction Project. And my name is Tim Yohoff. I'm the other director of the Winsome Conviction Podcast. I'm a communication professor here at Biola University. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking about conflict. We've been talking about what causes conflict. And so if you didn't listen to the first one, just go back and take a look. One point Rick made, though, in that podcast that is well worth repeating, this is not a new phenomenon. It's not that the modern church is suddenly embroiled in all this controversy and endless conflict. If you go back, Rick makes a great point in our book, Winsome Conviction, that quarreling is one of the biggest threats to the church and that the church has always tried to maintain a desire for unity, but also the real fact that Uh, conflict is present. Paul says to the church in Corinth, you're a holy people called together. And then in nine verses later, he says, I've heard that there's quarrels among you. (laughs) So what am I hearing that certain things are happening? So we covered a couple of different things. Go back and hit that podcast. This one can kind of stand alone, though. We're going to pick like two other areas. One that often gets neglected in communication theory, but I really think it's important to pick up on this because the research is fascinating. So, Rick, we know that there's kind of two different forms of communication. There's what we call emphatic communication, right? Turn on the news, you're going to see emphatic. Uh, Me pounding the table, me speaking with full vim and vigor and, and passion, we call that emphatic communication. And a lot of the argument culture is kind of made up of that. Well, in 1923, communication theorists started to identify a different version called phatic communication. And this is the mundane things. Phatic communication? Phatic, yeah. They didn't, they didn't check with the guys down in marketing about good terms. They just <laughs> picked up phatic communication. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> just wanted to clarify that. Back to you. So phatic is the mundane stuff. It's like the routine things. Uh, a way to think about it is like inside joke. So when I was at Eastern Michigan University as a communication major, a good friend of mine was Mike. Uh, He happened to be from Ohio, though. He was from Columbus, Ohio. They have, like, winning football teams there, right? Rick, Rick, this is my segment. I'm sorry, I interrupted. You're you're in. Why would you bring this? The University of Michigan is on hard times, man. I, I say to my friends from Ohio State, the Buckeyes, I was so bummed that the game got canceled because of COVID because I was confident we were only going to lose by 20 points <laughs> this year. All right, so Mike is from Columbus, Ohio, but he's attending a school in Michigan, and he's an ardent atheist, and I'm a student leader with Campus Crusade for Christ. So, Rick, we'd have our emphatic conversations, right? Talking about proofs for God's existence. He'd like to bring up the problem of evil. We had plenty of emphatic. Now, if that's all we did, most communication therapists would say that's going to burn out. You can only have these robust disagreements for so long because then it starts to affect the communication climate that we talked about in the last podcast. So we had all these great jokes. Like we'd see each other in the morning and we'd pass each other and he'd go, hate Michigan. I'd go, hate Buckeyes. 
And we just pass each other and just kind of laugh about it. He would wear to the lunchroom. We were good friends. We lived next to each other. A, a shirt uh, that, that said Profanity Michigan. All, the week of Michigan, Ohio State. A profanity, pick whenever one you're thinking of, Michigan. And we would walk, and I'm saying, we are going to get beat up. We are going to get beat up. He, and he goes, yeah, and they're just going to assume that you're with me. I go, I am with you. So th- those funny things, Rick, those are the, the, the simple, common. It's like a spouse that you're kind of upset with, but you call her hun. Uh-huh. Hey, hun. It softens. It softens. In- and, and we know that good phatic communication actually sets up the possibility of emphatic actually being productive. Okay. It, and is, does this include just like ordinary small talk or does it have to be joking or things like that? I, I no, people, ordinary small talk. Okay, because people will sometimes disparage that. Oh. And, and I've, that's been one of the things I've noticed with COVID in living in the Zoom world. Um, you can still have small talk in the in the Zoom world, but there's a lot of the really informal, hey, how's it going, what happened kinds of things that just aren't said because you don't meet each other. Everything's in the context of a meeting. Yeah. And I wonder how that erodes our communication climates and our ability to talk with one another when that kind of ordinary small talk. And I, I worry sometimes that we shouldn't actually call it small talk because it's perhaps way more important than you think it is for all the other good side effects, even if you don't learn that much that seems important. And one of the casualties of the argument culture, we do not see phatic communication. There is no room for it because we're not interacting with each other. The only time we're with each other is we're going to be arguing in front of Congress. We're going to be arguing in front of the school board, right? So these small little things. So I I had a a good friend of mine, a PhD student at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, very progressive, and I was conservative. So our joke, and by the way, you better believe we mixed it up in classrooms. I mean, you better believe I started bringing out the conservative view and she's bringing out the progressive. So she would go by and she goes, what's it like being part of the dominant culture? I said, you would not imagine the meetings we have. They are (laughs) endless meetings. And I said, it's even hard to listen to your marginalized voice. You know, and so we would joke and that was like letting off steam. And so G.K. Chesterton right, would have all of these amazing debates with George Bernard Shaw. And if you see these photographs, Rick, they're smoking cigars. They would often compare their favorite cigars. And we actually have letters that they're talking about cigars. And you might think, well, that's just stupid. What? No, it's brilliant. Because how many times can you argue conservative versus liberalism or the existence of God versus humanism? So the cigar stuff, I would argue, becomes amazingly important. So I want to challenge all of us as Christian communicators as we're trying to influence other people. We're, to we're, smoke a cigar? To smoke. No, thank you. This is brought to you by Biola University. Uh, no, Let's get this cleared up, Tim. Go ahead. But where are, you know what I mean? That to me is brilliant. What are the, what are the, so Rick, let me give you another illustration of this. I read a Rolling Stone article that caught my eye because the title of it was Bruce Springsteen Saved Our Marriage. Okay, so I read. Okay. I love Bruce Springsteen. So I'm reading the article. There was a guy who who just loved Springsteen, traveled all over the country, going to Bruce Springsteen's concerts. Never took his wife. Their marriage is not doing well. 
So he has front row tickets, and a friend of his gets food poisoning, cannot go. Now he's stuck with a ticket literally like five hours before the concert. So he begrudgingly looks at his wife, says, hey, want to go with me to the concert? And she says, sure. She loves it loves it and now they start going as a couple huh. all over the country going to Bruce Spring using vacation time to hit different concerts and the article was brilliant kind of tongue-in-cheek that hey we found something and we still argued but we always had Springsteen <laughs> that to me is really a nice thing and that's what we need to get to in this country is what's the things that we can talk about that aren't X that's causing all this tension in our relationship? Yeah, it's a, and that is an interesting thing. It's a little different than just saying ignore the problem. It's the, the danger is that because of the problem, we ignore the commonalities, the shared so interests, good. the things that we might both care about. Yeah. And so we don't talk about them because we've got to talk about the important stuff. Yeah. And perhaps you can't talk about the important stuff until you've shared some time enjoying the things that you happen to Sharing common, even if they're as trivial as cigars, Bruce Springsteen, or you know whoever you're. Yeah, you got to release the steam. The yeah. steam is building yeah. up way too much. And what is the common, fun, mundane things that release the steam? And today's argument culture, I think we're perpetually perturbed with each other, and we never find a mechanism by which to let off the steam. All right, Tim. Let me change. Take a little turn here in our conversation. Okay, hon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that didn't work. Okay. I tried. That was a bigger change <laughs> than I was planning on taking. Um, I think it's great to give counsel advice, you know, kind of the things we've been talking about to help us understand the, the difficulties and reasons we have our conflicts. One of the other things I've found, though, is that we aren't always, and even myself, I've noticed in my own heart, I'm not always actually willing or wanting to let these things go. I'm mm. really bothered by it. You know, it reminds me of an itch. I happened to be up at Bodega Bay with my family. Um, I happened to discover that poison oak grows with great enthusiasm in Northern California. Um, my legs decided to verify that fact, and it's proven true. So I have an itch. That I know I shouldn't scratch. If scratch will spread, gets oh. worse. I know this fact. Currently, you have this right now. I have. You don't want to see it. I but do I not. Do. I'm so we glad can we're verify distancing. That. We are glad social, we're yeah. listening. This is a podcast, not video. So you have this itch, and you know you shouldn't scratch it. But boy, do you want to. And by the way, when I do scratch it, it feels incredibly good for about two seconds. Mm, mm. And I feel like part of the thing with quarreling and fighting with people, it's like a poison oak itch. You know you shouldn't do it, but oh, at that moment, you get the dig in, you get the thought in, you get it, you, you kind of vent the, the deep-seated frustration you have. And then, of course, all the problems of quarreling tend to, to come out. So here's the thought. Let's take a few minutes and do a little bit of brainstorming. If you wake up today, you listen to this podcast or whatever it is you look at that makes you think, yeah, I should work on this. What does it look like to work on this kind of within your soul, mm. to move the needle of your soul's affections in a different direction? So I was thinking a little bit about this, and I'll throw out a few of those, and you can chime in. Um, one discipline that 
is very common. We talk about this a lot, but there's an easy way to begin thinking about it as an example. This is Paul talking about not letting the anger go down, mm. uh, the sun go down on your anger. And I think you talk in this book, and I think there's all kinds of wisdom that people have offered about this. That don't get crazy with the thing of everything has to be talked about every yeah. moment. But the general idea of saying, yeah, do not let these things fester. Find ways to address them. And I think that discipline of saying, okay, let me find a good time and let me not dodge the topic. Somehow we need to have this conversation. And it may not solve the problem, but the discipline of saying, I'm not going to act like it isn't bothering me when I know it is, because in effect what you're doing is lying to yourself. Mm. And that's a tacit way of helping yourself become a person of the lies, so to speak. And we don't just need to tell the truth to others. We need to tell the truth to ourselves. And when the truth is inconvenient, I really have a tension with this person that I deal with, and I am playing bad records in my mind about them. You probably need to say, okay, let me think of a way to at least broach the subject, do it in a way that's constructive, prepare ahead of time, whatever it is, but just say, you know, as a matter of spiritual discipline, I'm not going to just let things savor. Your complaint is not fine wine, and it will not get better mm. by by keeping. <clears throat> so what would that look like, that soul work, before you have this conversation? What would it look like to wrestle before you open your mouth? So that's a good question. One of the things I've noticed, uh, so like disagreements with faculty members or other people that I have, you get the self-talk going, and then you almost like when you think of the person, this weird little bizarre caricature pops up in your mind. And one thing, uh, I think of one person in particular, I've had some of these discussions and tensions with, that I really enjoy a whole set of features about, and I'm really bothered by other features mm. about this person. Yeah. And the discipline, before I think of what I'm even going to say about this, let me think about some of the things I really savor and value about this person. And it just begins to change, I guess, kind of the climate that's in my head. And it opens up the possibility of imagining good alternatives, positive things, as opposed to just drifting in the negative, you know, with my negative cartoon-like caricature of the, of the person. Um, so that's one thing that comes to my mind. Can I, and let me tag off that real quick. So John Gottman, who we've mentioned before, relational expert, he makes a comment that absolutely applies to what you just said. He said, the best indicator of the future of a marriage is how you recall your past. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah. do, when you look at the past, do you look at the negatives or the positives? So Rick, I like that. Like I'm about to have a talk with a person about an issue and I think Gottman would say that conversation is going to be based on how well you look at the overall relationship, the past interactions. Yeah. So I think it's one thing to say, you know, I, I do like this person. I do admire this person. Now, I think they're wrong in this instance, or they owe me an apology, or this is an issue. But I'm, I'm looking back, um, and I mostly have fond memories. My question, though, Rick, would be, what if you do that soul work, and you honestly say, you know, I don't have any positive interactions with this person. It's been pretty negative from the get-go. What do you do when you find yourself locked into this? I, I'm, I, I'm looking back at the past, and I can't think of very many positive moments. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting for me. One thing I've discovered is how often simply telling the truth can be enormously helpful. Mm. 
And to think of a moment like this and say, obviously this would depend very much on the context and the person, but to be able to say, you know, I was sitting there thinking about this. I know we need to continue working on this project or whatever, um, but just said, I realize when I think about this, I have a lot of negative memories and very few positive memories of the discussion and interaction. Mm. I don't like it that way. And I'm not saying this is your fault, not my fault, but I just suddenly had that realization. And I think I'd like to work on that. Mm. That's good. And it's not an indictment of the person. And there's something interestingly transparent and warming, even if the person says, wow, well, I, it hasn't been that you know, big a problem for me. And to say, well, good, that's helpful to, to know. Oh, so you're talking about articulating it to the person. you actually articulate it to the person. Ah. And it depends, a, again, a lot yeah. on the person yeah. in the setting. But to be able to say, yeah, I feel like we've gotten into a, a cycle that's really negative, and I'd really like to change it. It doesn't, it doesn't do me any good, and I imagine it doesn't you either. Have you felt that? You know, what are some things, are there things that I do that make it hard for you? And, you know, just broaching the problematic nature of it with, with a person. Oh, I like that. I, I do like that. It's like what you just said. One, the person can say, oh, that's not hitting me that way at all. Be like, oh, great. Or if the person says, yeah, I, I do think our communication could be better. Then to say, well, what can we do to make it better? And here's my commitment. I'm yeah. going to try to be more encouraging. I'm going to try to listen better. I'm going to try to acknowledge better. So I like, but it's a little bit of a gutsy thing. It is a that. gutsy thing. Yeah. I mean, it's not a, it, it's not a, but this, yeah. again, part of what we're talking about is kind of spiritual discipline things. We say, wait, I, I need to tend and curate my own soul. I need to cultivate certain qualities that aren't coming naturally to me. So here's another thing I thought of. Um, it, it's good to think about, I'll put these two things together. What you might call self-talk. So, and I just mentioned that, you know, how do I think about this version? I was, mm -hmm. wow, I tend to just get in these spirals of negative self-talking, not about myself, but to myself about this other person in a very negative pattern. I think one of the things that makes it easier to do that is the kind of media we consume. Mm. So if we're constantly listening to talk radio that is doing that kind of negative conversation, that just becomes the gutter into which our, our mental self-talk drifts. And you'll probably think bad things about In-N-Out Burger as well as your neighbor, your spouse, or your yeah, boss. Yeah. You know, you just get that going. So be an interesting spiritual discipline to stop and say, okay, today, what have I read or seen on social media that gives me hope? Mm. What have I seen or read on social media that's an example of a person who's said or done something that's really good? Could I tell a friend of mine, hey, this was a link that I read that really encouraged me and send it out to a person mm. as opposed to just spreading the negative. And again, you're not creating something that isn't real. You're, it doesn't work if it was really a dreary thing. You know, it, it has to be something that really does give you hope. But part of the thing is we don't see a lot of things because we don't look for them. No, that's good. And I'm a, you know, I, I grew up in Colorado. I've spent a lot of time skiing and doing other things that involve snow. And when I look at a field of snow, I immediately look at it and I go, that looks like icy snow. There's an ice coating on top. I see if it looks like soft or corn snow. Is it new? Is it light? Is it heavy? I read all those things out of, you know, the light that's reflecting back to me off the snowfield. 
Why do I do that? Well, because I grew up in Colorado and spent a lot of time skiing and it mattered to me, man. If I didn't read right, I'd crash and burn, you know? So you acquire the skill and you attend to it more carefully. You don't glance, you look mm. at what looks to anyone else just like a white field of snow. And I think doing those kinds of things to the stuff that we're having coming, wait, let me look for something good. Let me praise the good, let me pass on the good can begin to shift our kind of mental energy. And again, as a spiritual discipline to help change and reshape your own soul, that can be really valuable. Can I, can I jump in there real quick? Because no. I'm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love what you're saying. And I'm thinking of an illustration, Rick, where I was preaching in a church and temporarily lost my mind because it was when Donald Trump and uh, Secretary Clinton were, were running against each uh-huh. other. And I had this wild idea, Rick, of saying, you know what? Aristotle says that goodwill is key that we learn how to afford it to different people. So I actually did a sermon, Rick, on, so here are the, the things I learned about Donald Trump that I didn't know and I think are positive. And here about Secretary Clinton, okay? Rick, I got hit by everybody. <laughs> everybody was so mad at me because how dare you say anything positive about yeah. Secretary Clinton? How da- I mean, I got letters and emails, and it was bad. So I love what you're saying, but that ought to be a big tip-off to us that we have become really myopic in the negative uh, messaging that we're yeah. getting. And I love what you're saying. Man, let's, let's try to deviate from that because that can really have some harmful effects where a person is all bad. That, that is dangerous territory. Yeah. Let me give one more. Uh, Tim and I were at a conference together last weekend, and a person brought this discipline up that I thought was just a great idea. So let me just play it out a little bit. So the Shema, which is uh, the Hebrew word for, for here. So it's the, the phrase, hero is there, the Lord your God, the Lord is one and shall have, uh, you, know, you know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So this is a phrase that uh, faithful Jewish people would repeat several times a day, seven times, five times, depends upon, you know, your, your context or the, the group you might be a part of. But it was a thing that you did again and again and again to kind of reorient yourself to who God is and who you are. And it was very powerful, but it was built completely on ongoing repetition Mm. on the assumption that this little, what we might call now a mantra or a slogan, um, would help frame your thinking. So really interesting thing uh, that this person at the conference mentioned that I'd just like to pass on to our listeners, the idea of saying having kind of developing personal Shema, Mm. kind of perhaps a thing like about communication or something like that. So for Tim and I, in the last 18 months or so as we've been doing this, James chapter 3, verses Mm. 17 and 18 become like this. It says, uh, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It'd be interesting to put that on like the back of a business Mm. card. And in the morning when you get up, when you start your day at work, when you, before you come in, before you go to bed, to read that. And it helps a ton to say it out loud, actually, just like I just did, in terms of helping to retain it. Uh, but that kind of a thing, say, let me find a phrase, you know, seek not so much to understand, to be understood as to understand, you know, the St. Francis prayer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be biblical language, but it's something that captures a biblical vision 
for how it is that we should communicate, especially when the prevailing culture is not doing it that way. They're playing by a different set of rules. And you have to remind yourself, say, I need to be different. I want to be different. What's my Shema? What is my repeated phrase that will help me kind of recenter, refocus on the way I need to communicate? And at bare minimum, start the day, end the day. And it can even be a little bit of a diagnostic to say, hey. How did, how yeah, did I how do? How did I do? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Rick, you need to clear this before you share these predicting <laughs> things. I was not emotionally prepared. But, but man, what a great idea to have that Shema. Uh, for us to invite the Holy Spirit in to remind us of it throughout the day. And I like it saying it out loud. I think it's really good. Yeah, that's one of the things. And, and I've, it's similar to like praying on your knees or praying with your hands open or raised or things like that. There's certain things that just help you kind of deepen a, a ritual that otherwise could become really trivialized. So, you know, those are just a few ideas for saying, okay, I understand I need to work on quarreling. I'm not really feeling it. Yeah. Uh, so what are some things you might do to help make us a person who feels just a little bit more drawn to working on, on quarreling? So if you've listened to the previous podcast, you know that we've been talking about uh, what causes conflict. And we've just mentioned some very broad categories. Certainly uh, check out winsomeconviction.com to get more resources. The book we've been talking about is I Beg to Differ, Navigating Difficult Conversations with Truth and Love uh, that I wrote in 2014. But we certainly have a book uh, current one, which is Winsome Conviction, Disagree Without Dividing the Church. We are here to resource the church. We're here to resource you. Uh, we do believe in civility, speaking truth and love. And we, in order to do that, we better understand how conflict arises and some simple ways to, um, to deal with it. So Rick, close us out with the, that Shema and we will be done and we'll uh, see you guys in future podcasts. Yeah. So let me do it. Um, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What a wonderful message. Amen. Thanks for joining Amen. us on the Winsome Conviction Podcast. Amen.